Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Bob Phillips is our guest. Bob has been with us a number of times through the years. Bob is a North Carolina native, graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, as we said uh, many times before he lost his uh, good judgment, he was a member of the press, including a a time at uh, WPTF in the news department. After that, he served as press secretary for former Lieutenant Governor Dennis Wicker and then joined Common Calls. And Bob, I guess probably, uh, I don't think we've done this for a while, so maybe just as backdrop, you could tell us what Common Calls North Carolina is and how it relates uh, to uh, your job and also how it works uh, on uh, in cooperation with other Common Cause organizations across the country. Absolutely, Don. And as uh, like always, it's great to be here with you talking about uh, Common Cause and some of the issues that uh, I know we'll get into. Common Cause actually is a national organization um, created a little more than 50 years ago. It's a nonpartisan nonprofit and essentially out to be an advocate for more open, honest and accountable government. Uh, In North Carolina, we work on such things as um, voting rights and ending gerrymandering and lobbying and ethics reform. And uh, back in the days before Citizens United, which is a a Supreme Court case, we did a lot of work in um, curbing big money politics, but just trying to do things that we feel improve democracy and get more people engaged in uh, participating. Well, that's a, that's good. A good backdrop for uh, what we want to talk about, because as you said, I think it is important to point out that uh, not only, of course, is it a nonprofit, but it's also nonpartisan, and so that means uh, both Democrats and Republicans uh, uh, are uh, part of your organization and part of its support. So uh, let's let's jump into the the last election and just sort of get an overview. Were you pleased with the turnout? Uh, as far as how many people in North Carolina voted? Well, I would say uh, maybe not. Uh, About half the people stayed home. We had slightly less people voting in this past 2022 election than we had during the last midterm, which really did not have a marquee statewide race. So 51% in 2022, 53% in 2018. for a midterm election, that's still historically a little bit better than what we had seen, say, in the last 20 years. But um, still, when you think about so many young people, the 18 to 25 year olds who uh, many, maybe it's uh, 30 or 40 percent turnout there, older people, it's a much higher rate. But um, it could have been worse, but certainly we wished it had been better than it actually was. Bob, does your organization do any research on just exactly why that might be? Uh, It it points out to, uh, uh, appears to me to be a a matter of apathy. And what is causing that? Is it uh, that people just don't feel like their vote counts or or is the information they're getting just not uh, causing them to feel like that uh, uh, they have an opinion they want to share with others through their vote? I think those are definite factors, Don. Some people feel like indeed their vote doesn't count. Other folks get very jaded with the negative commercials that are never ending that we see. And I know we've talked a lot about that. Uh, 
And uh, we have, though, a long ballot in North Carolina. And what we have found often and what a lot of the political science research suggests that the number one reason people don't vote is a lack of information. And by that, I mean not so much that they don't necessarily know of a candidate, the candidate's name, but they may not understand really what the office is, what it does. And I don't mean like the, say, the U.S. Senate, but sometimes the uh, Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals. Many people aren't even aware that we elect those kinds of offices in North Carolina, much less know who they are and really know what those offices mean to them. So I think a lot of why there is that app that, well, I won't say apathy, but I think a lot of why people don't often vote um, is the lack of information about, again, the uh, the election itself. Daily newspapers, of course, have been on the uh, uh, demise for some time now. And uh, now the circulation of the, the major newspapers, the News, uh, the news Observer and, and Raleigh, the Charlotte Observer and Charlotte, the uh, Greensboro paper, the Asheville paper, and so forth. Subscription label uh, levels are at uh, all-time low as far as the printed press. Is that part of the problem? Because, uh, quite frankly, the electronic press has never really covered some of the issues that those organizations have always covered in much more detail. I would say yes. Um, you know, we all, you and I, and a certain generation, maybe a little younger than us, grew up with a habit of looking at a newspaper uh, every morning. I actually, you know, and I know you did too, there used to be an afternoon paper that we would all look at. And that is something that young people and people, no one under 40 probably even has that kind of habit where a daily newspaper, kind of a trusted source, objective to a degree just doesn't exist anymore. We all kind of go to our places that reaffirm maybe our beliefs. I know that's what we hear a lot from the uh, folks who study the culture, but I do think that does create gaps in the kind of basic information that we once thought about regarding how democracy works. Uh, so it's a shame. I wish that newspapers were as vibrant and had the same place that they once did in our um, world. But um, certainly you're right, Don. It's much, much different today than it was even 10 years ago. Well, newspapers had uh, three different roles. One, of course, they reported the news. And a lot of people thought that might have had some bias to it. But it was, supposedly that was objective. Then they had investigative reporting, which uh, in many cases did have a bias, an intentional bias. And then, of course, the editorial page was opinion. Two of those factors are missing these days. Uh, uh, could that be a part of what's going on? I think it is. And I do think, again, when people run to their places that they're comfortable with reaffirming the values, that does contribute to the coarseness, the lack of civility, the kind of even partisan divide that continues to exist. Uh, of course, the negative campaign commercials play into that as well. But um, there does seem to be that foundational information that we are missing today in our world. And the newspapers had a role in it and uh, where people get their information. And just the fact that it's very, the brevity of it as well, I guess the 
you know, they say maybe the focus and concentration levels are such that people don't do the, I know what's called long form reading so much anymore. And uh, I think all that contributes to um, the the lack of knowledge and which probably has a connection, like I'd said earlier, to um, a low voter turnout. Bob, you alluded to the Citizens United case, which really basically changed the way politics uh, occurs as far as the expenditures. Uh, why don't you give us a little background for those who might not be aware of just how important that case was? Tell us the outcome of that case and what it's led to. Well, we had always had boundaries prior regarding what corporations and wealthy individuals could uh, spend on uh, political speech, if you will, regarding, you know, to campaigns and then independent expenditures. And Citizens United changed all that in a decision that allowed for uh, unlimited amounts of money that could be spent by businesses, corporations, and wealthy individuals for the express purpose of either defeating or electing a candidate of their choosing through this independent expenditure. Now they call them super PACs, political action committees. And it has really just been, as you say, Don, a game changer because that money is greater than what candidates themselves uh, raise and spend. It's always now in today's vernacular with campaigns, you know, how much independent money is being spent against this candidate or how much independent money is being spent for. And you've had, you know, certain wealthy individuals who've given at the national level, um, gosh, like a hundred million dollars. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, some of the amount of money that some wealthy individuals and, you know, corporations can also open up their treasuries in ways that we've never seen. And um, it certainly distorts the the playing field, if you will, uh, where independent money can just completely drown out everything else that a candidate may be doing, you know, on their own. And this was a, I think it was a 2010, 2011 decision. So we've had it now for a little more than a decade. And uh, it seems like every election cycle, there is more independent money being spent on uh, campaigns. And of course, most of this results in what we would call negative political ads. So consequently, most of the uh, public decides who they're going to vote for basically on what uh, the candidate is against, not what the candidate is for. That's true, unfortunately. You know, the negative and the fear factor works in campaigns and can motivate people to vote, which is a shame. But uh, I know when I worked in politics, the some rule was to find the other guy before they define you. And that's what a lot of these campaigns and independent expenditures are all about, defining in a very negative light uh, the uh, person that they're going after. Well, Bob, uh, you're not, of course, you're not as old as I am because I'm as old as dirt, but uh, I can go back to the 50s when I was, uh, at that point in time, I was a teenager, but uh, Back in those days, the political candidates would buy 15-minute airtime blocks. And in 15 minutes, they would talk about all the things they were going to do and talk about their platform and 
all that sort of thing. And so you had a good idea of what the candidate was for. Um, and uh, uh, you had so much more information uh, to base your decision. Uh, those days are long gone. And so now most candidates, again, are defining the other candidate rather than defining themselves. That's so true. And, you know, the days of long uh, candidate conversations, if you will, with the electorate are seemingly long gone as well. The 30 second TV commercial or just the way things are packaged. I know it's just far different than it used to be, unfortunately. Um, and I don't know really the way the world is if we'll ever see those days come back. Well, it's hard to imagine that they will come back in the, in the, the next, uh, certainly by the next election, which is now less than two years off. And uh, we want to talk a little bit about that. And, and uh, uh, also we want to talk about the uh, U.S. Supreme Court case on North Carolina redistricting uh, and what that could possibly mean for our future congressional maps here in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, also get your ideas on how we can achieve independent redistricting. And we'll do that. Bob Phillips is our guest. He's the executive director of Common Cause North Carolina. And uh, we shall return right after these messages with Bob and much, much more. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is uh, the Executive Director of Common Cause North Carolina and the frequent guest on our program, Bob Phillips. And uh, we talked uh, a great deal in the first segment about the uh, most recent election and the turnout. And also, uh, we got into some discussion about Citizens United and how that's affected uh, uh, the election process. Now, I will turn a little bit now to the U.S. Supreme Court case, because there is one P, uh, P, uh, before that uh, body right now based on uh, North Carolina redistricting. Uh, what could this uh First of all, when do you think there will be some action on this and what uh, could it possibly mean for future congressional maps here in North Carolina? 
Two great questions. Uh, oral arguments now have been made before the U.S. Supreme Court, and the high court is not expected to give a decision or make a decision on this until June at the end of their uh, session, if you will. And uh, that's when they start giving out all the decisions on the major cases they've heard. But we're all waiting, Don. This was a case that um, some have described as the gravest threat to our democracy. And of course, that's a maybe loaded phrase. But what it could really do is essentially give the legislature unbridled power to draw maps and to pass election laws without any check from the state court. And that's sort of what we've always had in this country, a checks and balances system. But uh, the legislature has felt like there is a clause in the U.S. Constitution that grants them supremacy over having the state court have any oversight over things that they pass. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about gerrymandering and the need for something better, but this would literally give the legislature an opportunity without any, with full impunity uh, to draw, and these are federal elections, and in this case, the congressional map, uh, they could gerrymander it how they please, and there would be no way to, for the we the people to uh, seek relief. Well, it, you know, North Carolina, of course, has 14 congressional seats now, and of course, uh, if you Divide that out, I think that ends up being, what, about 950,000 people that have to be in the district to make it about even. Well, the problem with that is counties like Wake County have more than 900,000 people, so they would have a full congressional seat, whereas uh, in eastern North Carolina, northeastern North Carolina, it would take, probably take uh, 12 or 13 of those counties to come up with 900,000 people. So uh, on one side, it is difficult in North Carolina with our imbalance of population uh, between the metropolitan markets and the rural markets to come up with congressional districts. I mean, if you look at the people who are, if, if you're really doing as good a job as you could, it's still a difficult task to begin with because of that imbalance in the population. Yeah. How do we get over around there? Rule number one, as you've mentioned, is that every district has to have the equal population. And um, that does require some uh, decisions that have to be made where you have multiple counties in certain areas of our state that don't have a lot of people combined into one. And you try to make your uh, districts as compact and contiguous and keeping what we would say communities of interest together, uh, whereas the Mecklenburg and Wake counties and to an extent the Triad counties have enough population to where you literally are getting a full district of maybe two thirds of Wake County and then another district out of a, uh, you know, another one. What we've seen though, both parties have done it, but what we've seen historically is uh, the shape of um, districts are really governed more of piecing together uh, voters in a way that entrenches the party in power. And in November of last year, when the current Republican majority drew a congressional map, they drew a map that was projected to give them 10 seats and the Democrats four, or some even suggested it could be an 11-3 map. Well, 10-4, 11-3 is not North Carolina. North Carolina is more of a purple state, maybe with a hint of red in the last election, I guess more uh, the Republican state, the statewide races did trend Republican, but still it is much 
much more of an evenly divided state than a 10-4 or an 11-3 map. So the court drew the map uh, after the legislature's map was ruled unconstitutional. And as you know, the 2022 election, the 14 delegation split right down the middle, seven Democrats and seven Republicans. I don't think the average person, Don, in North Carolina would find a whole lot of fault with that. I think it's the Republican leadership on Jones Street, i.e. the legislature, that has the biggest problem. And that's why they've taken this case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, because they did not like how the state Supreme Court ruled the map they drew unconstitutional. Now, uh, in addition to that, the state Supreme Court now has changed uh, its uh, makeup. And uh, so I guess that's another factor that will be in the mix as far as future court action. It is. And, you know, given the makeup, uh, I suspect that the there will be a lot of receptiveness to what the legislature wants. Uh, it's too bad that we see our courts, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or the state court, uh, take on a more partisan veneer. Uh, it used to not be that, but that's what things have, that's what, what has become. I know that the Republicans made that claim and charge about the Democratic majority court and, you know, we'll see sort of how this Republican majority court acts. But kind of circling back to the Moore v. Harper, this state was initially founded with a constitution. The constitution created the legislature. The legislature, 233 years later, is saying that piece of paper doesn't mean anything. And the laws that regard federal elections in there don't mean anything either. We should have the power to draw a congressional map and pass federal pass laws governing federal elections without any check. Checks and balances is what has made our democracy work. I just cannot imagine that the U.S. Supreme Court can somehow rule favorably with the Republican legislative leaders who have uh, filed this lawsuit. Uh are there any states that uh, have achieved real live independent redistricting commissions that uh, have uh, set up a, a better way of uh, outlining their districts? Well, there are two that come to mind. And I know when you say California, a lot of people will raise their eyebrows and say, what, California? No, thank you. Uh, but they were the first with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is also a controversial figure in and of himself, but you may remember, Don, he was a governor, Republican governor, and he worked with the Democratic legislature and there was a ballot initiative and the people wanted something different. So they have a, a true citizens commission and it is where citizens are vetted uh, for geographic race, gender, uh, even age, perhaps, um, uh, and, and put together that represent in this case, California, Michigan has something similar. And they only have one purpose. And I should say partisan. You have equal amounts of Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan people serving on the commission. And their one purpose is to come up with a fair map that they can all agree on. Uh, California has had it for 20 years, and it's worked well from what we have seen. Michigan, this was the first time they had it. And uh, they don't have, neither one of those states has had the litigation 
since going to this Citizens Commission than what we historically see here. So we would like to see that work. I mean, I think the soundbite, you know, Don, we always talk about is lawmakers should not be drawing their own districts or lawmakers should not be choosing their voters. It should be the other way around that voters choose lawmakers. But when you get to draw your district, when you are able to do that, human nature is going to have you draw a district that favors you and your party. As I said, Democrats did it when they were in charge and Republicans have been doing it ever since they took power. You know, the complicating factor in all this is the large number of people that are now registering as unaffiliated, not affiliated with either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, yet almost every one of those leans one way or the other, but you don't know which way they lean. Uh, there's no way of determining that. So that is a further complication when you uh, do try to come up with some sort of a panel that's split between Democrats and Republicans, uh, because you're not quite sure where the registered unaffiliates fall. Uh, I, I guess some informal surveys uh, could help define that, but uh, that is a, yet another complicating factor. Yeah, what they do is, and I think we have a third of our counties now that have unaffiliated more than the other political parties in the state this past spring, unaffiliated became number one registration over Democratic registration and Republican. Um, what you do, though, you look over the course of several election cycles, and I think Wake County might now have more unaffiliated than registered Democrats and registered Republicans, but you see how Wake County tends to go over a course of time and they can break that down to the precincts. And when people are gerrymandering, if you will, that's what they're doing. They're kind of grabbing. If you're a Democrat and you want to create a Democratic district, then you're looking at those precincts, not so much how people are registered, but how that precinct performs historically. And if it has a lot of uh, unaffiliated voters, but they tend to over the course of 10 years reliably vote Democratic, you can just assume that that's going to be a safe democratic precinct. And so that's how they kind of cobble all this together. But in today's world, Don, and this is kind of what's made gerrymandering, as they say, with surgical precision, computers and algorithms, and they can draw and have a computer spit out uh, 10,000 variations of a map. And, uh, you know, it just is amazing how it is done. But that's certainly a way that they they feed all the info into the computer program. And get the maps, uh, you know, that benefit their side the, the most. So, Bob, if uh, if Common Cause had its way, uh, what how would you handle redistricting? What what would you uh, uh, suggest is the way that would be the best, fairest and um, the way that uh, you would advocate for? Well, I think it's twofold. It's who draws the maps and what rules they follow. And the who draws the maps, we believe, should be a citizen's commission. So what rules they follow and they can be prioritized as equal population, of course, maps that don't favor a political party or have a racial uh, bias, if you will, uh, communities of interest being kept uh, intact as much as practicable, compact districts uh, contiguous. I mean, things like that uh, are, are what we see the um, 
the other states that are doing this well. And uh, that would be what we would like to see. And really, it would be terrific if we could, you know, I guess the way it works here in North Carolina, the legislature has to, by two thirds majority in both chambers, put something on the ballot. But we would love to see this done, uh, be put on the ballot and let the people of North Carolina actually make that kind of a decision. preferably in a presidential election year where you get more voters uh, voting and we could even have it as a campaign, you know, kind of have it as a debate and educate the public as much as possible, but then have this kind of um, setup, as I've mentioned, independent citizens commission following good, strong criteria that sets the rules. The likelihood of that happening before 2022 uh, or 2024 is practically uh, zilch, I would imagine, but uh, it is Negative a nice zilch. thing to have on your wish list. <laughs> yeah. Our guest is Bob Phillips, Executive Director of Common Cause North Carolina, and we'll be back. And when we come back, we're going to talk about voting rights, voter ID, same-day registration, out-of-precinct voting, and all that sort of thing. We'll be back right after these messages. One in three adults in America have pre-diabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has mama. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No. I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Again, this week, our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Cause North Carolina. As we said in our first segment, that's a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that advocates for a fair government. And uh, Bob has been our guest a number of times over the years. We've talked about the U.S. Supreme Court case on redistricting and how that could affect the next congressional map here in North Carolina. And uh, so I think in this segment, we want to turn to uh, get a, an update on where we stand as far as voting voting rights. Uh, we are now getting uh, uh, some more feel for uh, the way that we are turning out to vote now, mail-in absentee voting and uh, uh, voting uh, uh, out of precinct voting and same-day registration and the voter ID and so forth. So bring us up to date on all those matters, Bob, and and uh, how you feel like the voting process is, hap- is uh, being handled here in North Carolina. 
I think, Don, we have some really good, strong voting laws overall in North Carolina. And even though the turnout may not have been what exactly we had hoped for, it was by and large problem free in our state. Uh, there might have been some isolated incidences here or there where a voting machine gets jammed, or maybe there were a couple of instances where some folks outside the precincts might have gotten too close to where they shouldn't have been. But overall, um, uh, we had a, a good election without any real problems. The other I think thing I would point to, though, is that with some of these changes that we've had in the law in the last 20 years, I mean, you and I do go back away and we remember when you voted only on an election day and that was it. And uh, early voting has become now um, more popular than election day itself. More people vote during during that 17 day early voting period than they do on election day. So we want to continue that. And then we have same day voter registration, which allows people to register and vote simultaneously between or during the early voting period. And and Democrats and Republicans and unaffiliated voters use that uh, in equal measure alike. So that has been a good thing. Um, you mentioned vote by mail. That has also become more popular since we've had the pandemic. It's something that we want to continue to at least have that as a an easy option. Um, out of precinct voting, which sounds kind of odd, but what that means is when someone shows up on election day to the wrong precinct, that if they can't get to the precinct that they are assigned, they can still vote what's called a provisional ballot. And that's kind of the generic or the general, I should say, uh, elections on the ballot. Um, those things are all important. And I think Don, what we've seen is 20 years ago, North Carolina used to be traditionally more in the bottom 10 percent of vote of a, of states uh, regarding voter turnout, whereas now we're more in the top 10. Granted, the first question you asked was about voter turnout. What do we think? It's not as high as we would like, but we still are a state that has um, comparatively a pretty good turnout, and it's much better than it was 20 years ago. And I think one of the big differences is these laws that I just mentioned that have made voting a little bit easier and more accessible. Uh, Bob, you sort of alluded to the fact that you feel like that all these changes have sort of been neutral as far as uh, having a, uh, an advantage to either Democrats or Republicans. Is that true? It's definitely true with same-day voter registration. Uh, both parties almost have now begun using that equally. I think when the law went into effect in 2008, the Obama campaign really took hold of it and used it. And the Democrats started using that much more than Republicans. But I think everyone uses it in pretty much equal fashion. Um, vote by mail, interestingly enough, Republicans used to utilize that more than Democratic voters. And 2020 Democratic voters, and in this last election, while we didn't have near as many as we had in 2020, uh, I think Democratic voters still tended to use vote by mail a little bit more. And I would say that probably was some of the signals that the former president, Trump, had uh, has been historically uh, fanning the flames about um, somehow an absentee ballot or a vote by mail rather is um, corrupt or is, is somehow not uh, proper. Um, the other one, um, in terms of out-of-precinct voting, it's not like that happens a lot 
And it's not something that really has a bigger impact um, or advantages one party over the other. Uh, but the last one and the big one, as far as early voting, what we had seen historically was that Democrats voted uh, in much greater numbers in the early voting period than Republicans. And while that is still true, it, what we are seeing in the last couple of elections, including this last one, that Republicans are beginning to take advantage more of early voting than they had before. And it's just a matter of fewer people are choosing to vote on election day. Republicans tend to still be Republican voters tend to vote more on Election Day than Democratic and unaffiliated voters, however. Well, all of this is, uh, I guess, uh, helpful for those of us who are in the media for Election Night, because back uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, I can remember uh, participating in election return coverage that ended at 4 a.m., <laughs> and uh, that wasn't the exception. That was more the rule. Uh, so now, the, the uh, of course, you've got computers and you've got voting machines and all that sort of thing, but also early voting makes it possible for the results to come in much sooner. Uh, it, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that that's good or bad, but that's a, that's a fact. It's true. What happens every uh, a month out from election, or it might be five weeks, but North Carolina law allows county boards of elections, and this is where the actual board of elections, the bipartisans, they can take the absentee ballots, not absentee ballots, the votes, and they open the ballot and they run them through the machine. They don't tally, but they run them through the machine. Whereas at 731, all across North Carolina, we can get that early vote almost instantly because those votes have been counted. What we don't have would be the ones that come in um, the uh, the Tuesday, the Saturday before the election, those have not been tallied prior. But the other thing, too, Don, and this is again became a controversy, I guess, in the last election. You have Election Day. You have the vote that are tallied from Election Day and early voting. But then you have overseas voters, military voters uh, vote by mail. Some of those votes, I mean, some of those ballots that uh, come in have the proper postmark, but they may come in after the election. And in North Carolina, they can still count up to three days after the election, as long as it has a postmark uh, that was postmarked on election day. Those all have to be counted. And then that's what they call a canvas where the county, 10 days after the election, they count all of those mail-in ballots, overseas military ballots that come in, they generally never change the outcome of an election, but elections don't become official until that canvas is done 10 days after election day. So from top to bottom, how would you rate uh, election integrity in the state of North Carolina? I don't think it is okay. anywhere. Uh, I would say when I, you know, rating it, I think the election integrity is very good. Uh, we have in North Carolina uh, very comprehensive audits that occur after the election in all the counties that are conducted by the boards of elections to where they uh, randomly take the machine and then do a hand-to-eye count with the ballots. Every machine produces a physical ballot, uh, whether it's the scanner uh, punch screen or the 
ballot that we have in Wake County where you put it in. Um, and that's done. And uh, in the last in the in this election cycle, uh, everything checked out fine. So I think in that respect, we know that our voting machines are accurate. Uh, I think we can say that with a hundred percent certainty. Um, I think that we have some wonderfully dedicated county board of elections paid staffers who do all the work that's required to make sure an election comes off without a hitch. And then we have some wonderful people who volunteer. Uh, they get paid a small amount of money, but they do the work during the uh, early voting period on election day, handling the volume of people coming in. Um, so I really do think, fortunately, North Carolina has a great election system that has a lot of integrity. We have had those problems. John, you may remember in 2004 when there was a statewide race that the machine lost a lot of those ballots and the election of the Department of Public Instruction, I think it was the state superintendent office, was sort of uh, in question for months. But that was before that the there was a paper ballot that these voting machines were uh, producing. Now every voting machine has to produce a paper ballot. So again, I think we have a very good system that's secure, fair, and has integrity. Well, you know, the old joke about uh, Chicago and uh, the uh, Daily Administration, and of course, the, the line up there was uh, be sure to vote early and vote often. Uh, so we at least don't have that kind of reputation here in North Carolina. Uh, uh, so uh, we, I guess we can be thankful for that. So uh, what uh, should there be any changes in our voting laws? Uh, uh, are you pleased with the, the way they are? And would you suggest any changes to the present? set of laws and regulations that we're following? Well, I think something, uh, there are some states that have what they call automatic voter registration, and that is when someone becomes 18 years of age, they are registered to vote automatically. Uh, I don't think that's anything that's bad. That could be something that would be nice for the legislature to consider. Um, I think that if they give counties more leeway, right now, Don, every county has to have the same number of hours for early voting. And you might have um, Scotland County or um, I'm trying to think of your old uh, haunts done where remind me the county. Um, well, Gaston County would be another Gaston yeah. County, maybe Gaston County or maybe some of those counties in wherever rural North Carolina. They don't need to have quite the number of hours that Wake County or Mecklenburg County has. I think giving the counties more flexibility regarding hours and early voting sites and numbers and all that would be is would be good too because not every county has the same amount of resources and money and some of those smaller rural counties are cash starved so those are two areas that i think um, could potentially be improvements that uh, we would love to see the legislature consider um, more support more money for those county boards of elections um, not necessarily changing the voting law but just making sure that all 100 county board of elections have the money that they need uh, to run uh, the elections um, in a proper fashion. Bob, I'm sure you, you've got these numbers that you probably don't have them at hand, but what percentage of 18-year-olds are registering uh, upon their first eligibility? 
You know, again, great question. I don't know the. I was going to. I thought you were going to ask in terms of um, are they registering with a political party? And most eighteen-year-olds are now registering unaffiliated. But to your other question, uh, that I don't know. I do know this: there are a million North Carolinians who are voter age eligible who are not registered to vote. Voter age eligible, but not registered to vote. Why? I don't know. There's a variety of reasons, but they also run the gamut probably from the 18 to maybe the 80. Uh, But um, those are things that would be nice somehow to be able to address and uh, find out why and encourage people who are eligible to register to vote. Interesting that uh, most of the 18-year-olds are registering non-affiliated. We could talk about that, I guess, in our final segment of how people feel about political parties these days. That might be an interesting way to start the next segment. Our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the Executive Director of Common Calls North Carolina. And we'll be back with our final segment right after we take time out for these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Again, our guest this week is Bob Phillips, the Executive Director of Common Calls North Carolina, a nonpartisan advocacy organization that uh, deals with voting rights and uh, uh, that sort of thing, and we've enjoyed talking with Bob. I would remind the listeners that uh, a number of our stations carry the full hour broadcast, and Yet another group of stations carry a 30-minute version of the program. If you happen to be listening to one of the stations that carries the 30-minute version, the two segments that you miss are available online at carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com. And so if you'd like to go online and hear those two segments or share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do just that. Bob, uh, we ended the last program talking about 18-year-olds registering mostly as uh, unaffiliates or unaffiliated. Uh, The general public, of course, is beginning to follow that uh, same practice of registering as unaffiliated, which indicates a lack of interest in the two-party system. 
Do you think the two-party system has served its purpose? Are we seeing a uh, demise of the party system, in your opinion? Well, they're definitely not the power that they once were, whether it's in an urban area or a county area. Uh, people certainly probably don't even want to discuss you know, what kind of political party affiliation they have even in the days today versus you know when you used to hear proud Republican or proud Democrat uh, roll off people's tongues. Um, I do think, you know, I don't know whether we'll be going to this because there are other parties like the Greens and the Constitutional and the Libertarians, but multi-parties, um, I think, are healthy for democracy. And that's always been a issue of having them on the ballot. And it's a high threshold we have in North Carolina for um, uh, these parties to be able to be on the ballot. But um, the Democratic and Republican parties are not the entities and people's lives that they once were for a variety of reasons. And I think as you alluded to, though, Don, even though many people do register unaffiliated, they may feel at home more in one party than the other, but they don't have quite that loyalty, perhaps, that um, someone that registers as a Republican or a Democrat does. And uh, they might, you know, vote split ballots more than, say, a Democratic or a Republican voter uh, does. Bob, uh, we are seeing a big change. We alluded earlier, of course, to the demise of the importance of the daily newspaper uh, on the the, the uh, on the news scene, and also as far as opinion, but also the importance of the three major networks: ABC, NBC, and CBS, has been eroded somewhat because of all the cable news channels, and then you've got social media. Uh, involved here. Uh, if you were advising candidates of how to get their story out, uh, what would you be saying to them? Because you're a former member of the press. How would you describe the landscape right now? Well, even what we do, Don, in the nonprofit world, where we're trying to at least alert voters in a nonpartisan way to vote, and we put we produce a, a nonpartisan voter guide every election cycle, and even we have gone to what they call digital outreach. And this is where you can do everything from Facebook ads to ads that are going to appear on somebody's watching a live stream show on their favorite, whether it's Netflix or Hulu, you know, you can get a commercial in that way. Um, there are what they call geofencing, and that is you're in a particular location and something pops up on your phone that happens to us all the time usually it's from a merchant you know like you're at target come shop you know whatever but that's what no, candidates can do and that's what um you know even nonprofits like us can do to try to reach people it's really tough i, I always wonder when we do spend money on digital advertising are we just taking a stack of money and striking a match and poof it goes up but it does work, apparently. This is how younger people particularly, um, you know, we all have that phone in our pocket and that's how we get so much of our information. So it's trying to reach them with what they are, you know, consuming. And as you mentioned, Don, in those days of network television, when it was just the big three networks or the newspaper that would come to the house, uh, it was pretty simple. You know, the commercial on the network news or the networks themselves, rather, 
and the uh, advertisement in the newspaper, but it's a heck of a lot more complex and complicated. But uh, that's, you know, kind of digital outreach, digital advertising. And uh, we certainly are seeing that today by uh, every campaign uh, these days. We also have, of course, in elections, usually we have debates. Uh, and of course, usually the candidate who's out in front uh, wants to leave well enough alone and not participate in the debates. And even when we have them, they uh, they sometimes turn into almost a media circus. Uh, do you have any evidence that the debates actually has any real effect on the outcome of elections? I think they don't have any uh, I mean, uh, impact at all like they used to. I mean, uh, you mentioned, uh, <clears throat> Don, as we often do, our age here. I don't really remember the Nixon-Kennedy or Kennedy-Nixon debate, but I know that was a huge moment in that election, and many people say it perhaps uh, swayed the outcome of that election uh, in, in many ways, whereas today I think a debate is it's almost like a news story, and what, the, uh, what gets pulled out by the campaigns and the advocates is the soundbite, you know, either the soundbite that's the the opponent messed up and here's what they said. It seems to get boiled down to just a few highlights. I don't know what the ratings of debates are anymore, but I think a lot of people, they just think, oh, I'll just see kind of what people pull out of a debate and then that's how I'll get my information. So uh, long answer, uh, I don't think they have a whole lot of impact anymore. I think you have to though do it. I think if you refuse to debate, that can become a negative. So I think you almost have to engage in a debate, but I just don't think they have the impact that they once did. We talked earlier about the super PACs uh, that uh, have come about because of the Citizen United ruling back in 2010 or 2011, whatever it was. Uh, the super PACs uh, are not, uh, there, there could be a good case made that, you need to know who is backing that and what their cause is, uh, some amount of transparency. Do you see any hope of that ever happening? You know, when the decision came down, the people who supported this said a lot in the decision about transparency and the need to have sunshine on just what you say, Don, who's behind it. And, you know, you have these packs, and I'll just maybe make a kind of a, facetious example, but, you know, citizens for cute puppies. I mean, you'll have these packs that have these kind of uh, nice sounding names and you think, oh, isn't that nice? Well, these must be nice people. But the money behind it and who's behind it and what they're doing, of course, is kind of hidden behind all that. I would hope, and that is one thing Common Cause will continue to work for, uh, that we can get more transparency. And I think it behooves both parties to do that because you have Republicans who get attacked by independent money that is, you know, where Democratic donors are behind it, just like you have, obviously, um, Democrats who are attacked by, you know, Republican independent money. So my hope is that there could be some bipartisan uh, support for more transparency. The other thing that, uh, you know, supposedly there's no direct contact between the super PACs and the political candidates. How would we get more transparency on whether or not there is some cooperation? There is some uh, dialogue between those parties in, in setting up the, the message. 
It's another great question, Don. Uh, you know, we see so often where the PACs are headed up by someone who used to work on the campaign and there's almost, you know, no revolving door there. I think we need to have some bright boundaries or bright guidelines about if you've worked for the candidate, uh, maybe there's a cooling off period of a year or two before you could head up or work on some super PAC and that there, again, would have to be complete transparency, almost to say you can't have a conflict of interest. Uh, granted, it's an entity that is working on behalf or against you know, some candidate, but you still want to have the public know exactly who's behind it and particularly the people that are running it, what kind of connection they have uh, to the candidate that is benefiting from this independent expenditure. And uh, again, going back to my last answer, I think there could be an appetite from both parties to support um, having some brighter guidelines put into the law. Bob, if you were advising the Democratic Party and the Republican Party on uh, how they would uh, go about creating more interest in uh, having people to align themselves with a party uh, more so than they are now, uh, what would you say to them? Well, I do think that there has to be from both parties more of a vision for what the Democratic Party or the Republican Party uh, has for, I'll just use, you know, North Carolina. We've had in the past politicians who had a vision for public education or a vision for e economic development. And uh, of course, it takes repetition, but I think all that gets lost on the kind of, you know, again, incivility that we see and the gotcha kind of politics that we're uh, operating under. And the bigger vision, I think, kind of gets lost in all that. Uh, and I think it has to be kind of transactional where a voter who lives in rural North Carolina has to feel like the political party that's appealing or asking for its support, uh, that they are feeling like, yes, this political party really is uh, supporting, you know, what my interests are or they care about me. I, I think oftentimes some of the voters are feeling like our interests aren't being heard and we don't feel like you're connecting with us. So. I know that kind of gets back to the basics. I mean, I guess it's always been where parties need to be able to paint a picture or candidates need to be able to provide a vision. But I don't think that that's something that we see a lot, and unfortunately. Well, basically, you know, what happens as people peel off and begin to register as unaffiliates, it means that the party uh, becomes, the Democratic Party becomes more liberal and the Republican Party becomes more conservative than maybe the mainstream voter in North Carolina. So the mainstream voter in North Carolina may be without a real life choice. I think you're right. You know, we are a moderate state. We always have been. And I think sometimes moderates are searching for a party or candidates that speak to uh, that kind of tradition that we've had in North Carolina for so many years. Bob, uh, our time is running out, and I appreciate you uh, taking time to visit with us and share your thoughts. Bob Phillips, Executive Director of Common Cause North Carolina. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and to hear the entire broadcast or the segments that you might have missed if you were only listening to part of the broadcast. We'll be back again next week, same time, same station. Until next week, have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.